Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, the march of the Super Tuscans, the wines that broke the mould and created a new category. We'll talk to Adam Lechmere from Club Inologique, who reported from the first Bulgarie Anti-Prima. And a message in a bottle that we can't afford to ignore. We'll talk to writer and presenter Alicia Hansel about her call to action on needlessly heavy wine bottles and why we need some glass action. Plus, as ever, medal-winning recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. The term Super Tuscan has always sounded oddly un-Italian, but then the wines were supposed to break the mould, so perhaps it's hardly a surprise. Bulgari is the birthplace of the Super Tuscan, and it's astonishing when you consider that its wines, the most famous of which, Sassicaia, made its debut as recently as 1968, are already among the world's most coveted cuvées, with prices to match. This, as the region seeks to assert its identity, Last month, it inaugurated its Bulgari Divino, an anti-prima, or a preview, that featured an epic dinner served on the most extraordinary dining table, a kilometre long, built on a stretch of road lined by cypress trees, uplit in the twilight sky. Uh, You may well have seen the pictures. Adam Lechmere from Club Inologique is a lucky man because he was there for that epic dinner, and he's here now. Um, Hello, Adam. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. Uh, Good morning, David. Before we paint a picture of that uh, epic dinner, Adam, um, just paint us a picture of Bulgari itself, as it's um, perhaps an unlikely spot for a, a gilded wine region, isn't it? Yes, well, they always said that Bulgari was never meant to be a fine wine region. Um, it's it's, um, it's the, a region about an hour and a half um, south of Pisa and about the same distance um, west of Siena. Um, it's a, a low-lying coastal region called the Maremma, um, and Maremma um, translates as um, coastal marshy region, which um, up until the 1930s was exactly what Bulgari was. Um, it was it was low lying. It was coastal. It was marshy. It was actually known as a malarial hotspot. Um, you know, there was there was fruit cultivated there. People lived there, obviously. Um, there was wine made there, but it had no reputation whatsoever. 
Um, they drained the marshes, they drained the region in the 1930s um, in much the same way as that the Dutch uh, drained Bordeaux 300 years before. And when they drained the region, um, you know, what was revealed were these fine sandy soils, um, very, very well drained, very, very good for um, the Bordeaux varieties, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc um, and, and Merlot. Um, and then a few miles inland, we go up in, in, into hills, up to, not, not dramatic hills, but up to sort of three, four, five, six hundred metres. Um, and the lovely, lovely villages of Bulgari itself and Castello Castinetti, that's, that's, that's Bulgari. Um, you know, we, we, we will be getting on to the history of Sassicaia and, and how the Super Tuscans came along. Um, but uh, that's it. That's that's the region itself. And by European standards, um, it really is um, a baby, isn't it? It is very much a baby. Yes. I mean, um, you know, the reason I was there for this for this celebratory dinner was because the um, the appellation, the DOC of Bulgari and Bulgari Sasakaya, is, is is just twenty five years old. It was um, inaugurated in nineteen ninety five. Um, the first really serious the first super you know the first great super tuscan wines um were made in the in the late 60s and 70s but you know um some some of the wineries that are, are producing excellent wines now are far 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 more recent i visited a winery called degreppi owned by um a, an irish geologist um who took over in 2017 um so you know it's 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 very much in many ways um even though at its pinnacle, it's got these incredibly famous, incredibly expensive wines. It's very much a region that's, uh, that's finding its feet. And what's astonishing is, uh, we mentioned Sassicaia there, the other great names that spring to mind, um, and, and it's, uh, that list is being added to all the time, as, uh, as you suggested, but Ornelia, uh, Solaya, uh, Tignanello, uh, these have come along even more recently than Sassicaia, haven't they? Absolutely, yes. I mean, Ornelia, um, the, 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 the vineyards of Ornelia were planted by, um, by the Antinori family in, in the early 80s. I think the first vineyard was planted in 1981 and their first vintage was 1985. Salaya, um, late 70s, 1978, I think the first vintage. Tignanello, um, the great, um, the great uh, Sangiovese from Chianti Classico, made by the Antinoris. Um, was um, 1971. So yeah, we, we are looking within the, within the last 50 years, basically. And the term Super Tuscan came about by a, a sort of rebellion. And I don't know if that's the right word to use, but uh, it was certainly a, a, a defiance of the, 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 the straight jacket of the uh, Appalachian rules um, that were very tightly defined. It's it, it, for a rebellion. It's a very successful one, isn't it? Yes. I mean, super tuscan. It's, it's an extraordinarily loose term, really, because it covers a multitude of different wines. Um, and um, yes, I mean, I, I always think super tuscan. I sort of in my in my head, I think super tuscan means just a very very expensive um, tuscan wine. But of course, um, you know, when Sassicaia, you know, came along, the first first commercial vintages in the late sixties, um, it was very very unusual very unusual indeed to um, plant these, these, these foreign varieties because, um, you know, Sangiovese was the, the, the great grape of Tuscany. 
Um, and, um, you know, the idea of, of planting, you know, what was then claret in Tuscany was, was, was quite extraordinary, which, you know, which is why, you know, they obviously weren't allowed um, to, 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 to mark the wines Tuscany DOC. And the, uh, the early Sassicai is a, a vino di tavola, you know, a, a table wines. That in itself, when you look at the prices and you, you assess the quality, the notion that these were table wines in the way that we have come to understand that expression is kind of bonkers, isn't it? Yes, I think I think the I mean you know I, ha I haven't tasted very few people have tasted the very early Sassicais. You know when 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 the, the Marchese um, in in Chisa della Rocchetta first plants started planting Cabernet Sauvignon in the in, in the forties. I don't know what those were like, and it wasn't until his friend um, uh, Ludovico Antonori came along and, and and started you know refining the wine and making it commercially viable. That's that's when it started sort of looking like a, a really serious wine. But yes, I, sh I should think the early ones were, were probably quite sort of quite interestingly rustic, I should think. Yeah, I have seen the word rustic used uh, while I was doing my research for those uh, early wines. Uh, you've been writing about wine for, for decades. I don't want to uh, reveal your age because obviously you, you look uh, far younger than, uh, than the, your work would suggest. But um, <laughs> um, with that perspective of um, several decades on the clock of, of writing about wine, how has uh, the Super Tuscan changed the landscape? Uh, do you think, in terms of the wines and rival wines? Yes, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you know, it, it's it's. I mean, looking back on it, we, we talk about these sort of you know re rebellion and the rebels and and you know the outrage, um, you know, of, of going outside the DOC and planting foreign varieties in Tuscany, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it, at the time, it did seem, you know, I think I think that pe people were um, quite sort of um, did get quite sort of uh, you know upset about it all. But you know, of course, they they they, they made that idea. Um, they made that idea respectable, you know, um, and then, you know, the, 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 the pendulum swings and, and, you know, in the last kind of 20, 25 years, all we talk about now is, is the, the primacy of indigenous varieties, the authenticity. Um, you know, I was down on Etna recently and um, they wouldn't plant, dream of planting anything there but Norello Mascalese and, and, and Caricanti. You know, the idea of anybody on Etna arriving there and planting Cabernet Sauvignon um, would seem would seem perverse. But um, and so at one stage it looked like the Super Tuscans, you know, um, foreign grape varieties, you know, um, very, very expensive, etc. Were, were sort of almost going to go out of fashion. But now I think the wheel is coming, the, the, the wheel is turning again. And, you know, the, the, the idea is, is, you know, when you, when you speak to somebody like, um, you know, Axel Hines at Masetto and you, you talk about the, the notion of an indigenous grape variety, He'll say, well, 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 what is indigenous? You know, is 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 Syrah indigenous to the Rhone? Is 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 Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon indigenous to to the Barossa Valley, for example? Um, you know, if the grape works there and if it produces fabulous wines, then then you know why not use it? So so you know the no, the whole notion of authenticity is changing as well. It's a really interesting point, and uh, yeah, Merlot just really shines. In Tuscany, I think, uh, when we are, you know, uh, when everything we learn tells us that, you know, 
Um, it's uh, an international grape variety and that Sangiovese is the kind of king of Tuscany. Of course, that shines there too. So it's interesting. It's, it's just, it's nuanced, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and you have these different terroirs in Bulgaria as well. And, up, you know, where, where the Merlot on the, the you know, those, those, those famous, famous vineyards in Maceto next door to Ornalaya, you know, as, as you go higher into the hills, you get more clay, which is, which is obviously, you know, the, soil that Merlot loves and as you go down in, into the sort of the, the, the more flat lands um, you get you get this this well-drained soil that's perfect for Cabernet Franc so um, yes there's there is, it's, it's a very nuanced region which is why um, in, in, in you know in my recent article I was saying that, that it is um, a, a region that is in a state of you know in a state of self-discovery which is a really uh, interesting uh, observation uh, it's a brilliant piece um, you were invited to the inaugural uh, Bulgari Divino uh, just explain what that was and uh, how and, and and why it came about yes it was a it was an extraordinary, an amazing couple of days, actually. It was, well, basically, um, in, in 2019, as, as they began their celebrations for the 25th anniversary, they, they decided to hold this fabulous dinner. And they decided in true Italian style, if they were going to hold a dinner, they had to hold a dinner that would be 4,000 people and that, 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 that would be on this, this wonderful kilometre-long table um, in the Biali dei, dei Cipressi in Bulgari, which is this famous avenue planted by the Garadesca family family um, over a hundred uh, a couple of hundred years ago actually so they held this lovely dinner at, just as a celebration it went so well that they decided that they had to do more for Bulgari they had to you know pre present Bulgari promote Bulgari um, put it even even further on even even more on the world stage decided they'd do it again obviously 2020 um, was a fallow year for everybody and so in 2021 they decided they'd do the dinner again but they'd also hold um, you know a tasting of all, all 65 Bulgari wineries, you know, a, a, a classic um, on primeur tasting with, 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 with um, you know, various venues holding, um, hosting um, 20, 30 or 40 wineries. And, and the, you know, the, 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 the local and international press and visitors would go around tasting the wines. And that's what we did. And it gave us, a, a, you know, a wonderful sort of insight into the... Um, into the styles of wines that are available that are being made down there. The, the Antiprima obviously will now, you know, I think they're, they're thinking of doing I think every two years they're thinking of doing it now. Great. Well, um, lucky you for being there. What did you learn in terms of those new wines and also that uh, evolving style? Well, I mean, you know, it's like, like all these things, you have to visit a region um, a, a few times to, 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 to really begin to sort of get an idea of what it's all about. And this is this is only the second or possibly the third time I've visited Bulgari. And um, what, what surprised me most is because when, when, when you look at the Super Tuscans, um, you think, right, this is this is a certain style. This is this is the sort of wines. These are the sort of wines that are coming out of Bulgari. But actually, when you're down there and tasting this, you know, a, a, a multiplicity of wines, Wines, you see this exhilarating um, variety, um, not only of, of great varieties, but also of style. Um, and so every table that you get to with the, you know, with the, with the wines lined up there and the smiling winemaker behind the table, you don't know if you're going to be getting a majority Cabernet Franc, a majority Cabernet Sauvignon, majority, a lot of Sangiovese down there still, though I think that's probably going to very quickly go out of, out of style down there. And also a great variety of um, vinification techniques, of oak regime. And so some wines were definitely on the kind of rustic 
end of the spectrum, by which I mean, you know, quite heavily extracted, um, you know, heavily tannic with overuse of oak, which I always think is the sign of a, of a, of a wine region that is um, sort of beginning to find a style for itself. Because, you know, winemakers, um, when, when you, you make a massive investment in very, very expensive oak barrels, you know, um, you, you, you like to show that in the wine. And, and you know, that isn't, um, you know, uh, possibly more experienced and sophisticated winemakers, you know, they know that actually the best use of oak is when it doesn't show at all. At the top end, you've got some really, really amazing, very polished wines because you've got you've got winemakers like, um, you know, um, you've got Gaia from 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 Piemonte down there in Tuscany. You've got you've got Banfi from um, from Montalcino. You know, they make a very, very polished wine there. Um, because it's such a fashionable region, um, you've, you've, you've got some, some very, very, very um, big names there now. Everybody wants to buy in Bulgaria and, and prices of land, I'm told, are, are going up exponentially. Every single type of wine on the spectrum, really. So why do you think Sangiovese might be going uh, out of fashion there? I, I, I just th I think the idea is that Sangiovese just doesn't work quite so well in this in this coastal area. You know, even though um, you know that people are using it in in, in minority as a, as a as a minority component in the blend, that very very few um, hundred uh, eighty or eighty five hundred percent Sangioveses down there. Um, really, what has been found is that it is the, the, the Bordeaux varietals, it's the Cabernets, the two Cabernets and the Merlots that work so well down there. And really, almost certainly what will happen is that, that um, you know, that they will be, as, as the producers um, go on, you know, with their replanting programmes, it'll become more and more obvious that it makes both um, both in, 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 in vinicultural terms and also economic terms, far, far more sense to plant the, the Bordeaux varietals. It might seem odd to some people that uh, an area like Bulgari, where they can set the release prices for the wines uh, that they do in kind of Bordeaux fashion, that a region that's so established in price terms could still be seeking to establish its identity. It seems a bit bizarre. Yeah, I, su I suppose it's because um, it, it's it's you know you say it's so well established in price terms. You do have this sort of it's it's a bit it's a bit like the English you know the the, the English football um, you know league. You've got the Premier League, which um, is is you know which are the Super Tuscans, which are you know as we've said, Ornolaya, Ornolaya, Sassicaia, Masetto, Cecchabella, Fontarola, all those all those great wines, you know. But then you've got um, you know you've got all the other 60 70 odd wineries that are at various stages of establishing themselves and you know that they're, they're sort of not, not hanging on the coattails but they're um, they're pulled up by the the, the 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 premier league wines but they're still sort of you know trying to find a market they're, a lot of them are still trying to find a market they're still trying to you know f still trying to establish themselves basically and uh, in that uh, I, I don't want to use the term second division because it, it makes them sound um, sort of inferior and that's not really what I mean. But in the um, the area where um, wineries might be seeking to enter the Premier League, did you find some really exciting wines that are perhaps at more affordable prices um, that are ones to watch? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's, 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 there's. Um, I mean, I, I made a, a, a list for for the website um, for Clubbing Logique, which which um, I hope hopefully you can share with your listeners um, of you know exactly that ones to watch. I mean, a, 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 an estate like Igrepi, for example, Igrepi, which is a fourteen hectare estate acquired by this this Irish geologist um, Neil McMahon in twenty seventeen. Now, you know, being a geologist, um, there's there, there are an awful lot of um, geologists in the wine world. You know, he, he, he set about modernising the style of, of the wine, um, you know, adding much more Cabernet Sauvignon, much more Cabernet Franc. Um, he's got, a, he's got a, um, a programme going with UC Davis to really, really, really study um, what exactly is going on in Bulgari. And those are really, really interesting wines. You've got, well, then you've got, you know, wineries like Guadal Tasso, which is from the Garadesca family, um, which is one of the most ancient families in, in, in the region. But it's now run by um, Albiera Antonori. So, uh, again, you know, you, you've got these, these great aristocratic families, um, you know, running relatively new um, properties. Um, again, making lovely, um, intense, silky, concentrated Cabernet Merlot and, and Cabernet Franc blends. Uh, you know, there's, there's Le Macchioli, which is, um, again, um, a, a, a one of the very, very big names, but again, relatively new, founded by um, Cinzia Merli um, and Eugenio Campolmi um, in the 1980s. Um, but it considers itself one of Bulgaria's historic wineries. But again, and it again produces lovely blends of Merlot. It has some Syrah there, some Cabernet Franc. There are many more, many more. I could go on. Well, we should consult your list, uh, which is, yes, a, a complimentary piece to uh, your uh, report of uh, that uh, uh, anti-prima. Um, just to crank up the envy, um, that amazing kilometre-long dinner table with the uh, the upright chandeliers and the uplit cypress trees uh, the pictures are just incredible um what did you eat and what did you drink <laughs> which we, there was there was a, there was a lot of wine there they had this i mean basically the table was there but i think every kind of every kind of 50 25 30 meters or so they had a drink station um, that, um, you know, towards the end of the evening became um, sort of more and more sort of unruly, this kind of scrum round the drink stations, you know, as people were sort of, you know, elbowing each other aside to get to the wines that they wanted. Um, but no, it was, it was very formally done, really. There was an army of waiters. Um, there were, um, we started, I mean, the, 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 I won't describe all the food, but the starter was a, was a velutato al, pom, al pomodoro, um, with burrata, so you know, tomato soup with burrata, absolutely classic Italian Ooh, dish, but was yum. absolutely delicious. You can imagine, um, you know, and it, oh. it sort of set the tone for the evening because it was also the most gorgeous night as well. And um, everybody was in, a, was in a wonderful mood because nobody had seen each other for 18 months. And so you, you can imagine, you can imagine what an Italian um, dinner like that is, is, is like when um, people were sort of out of captivity almost, you know, and the wine was flowing. It was a lovely evening. The cypresses were lit up in, in, in purple, red and, and gold. And I think even more, it was given an even more sort of, even more of an edge um, by the fact that thunderstorms had been predicted 
um, for that evening. And thunderstorms are very common in, in, in sort of, you know, late summer um, in that part of the world. And it wouldn't have been the least bit surprising if the whole thing had been, had been absolutely drenched. And so they had a plan B, which was to take all thousand guests and um, distribute them round three or four different wineries. I think Ornelia was going to take one and Guadalajara, the other, the other group. Um, so, you know, people felt, um, you know, I think doubly blessed, I think, by, by, the, by this lovely, lovely, balmy late summer evening. It was, no, it was, it was uh, you know, I don't, don't want to sort of over-promote it, but it was, it was uh, you know, the, the Italians know how to, um, how to entertain and they know how to throw a dinner. They really do. And uh, you capture that uh, beautifully uh, in the piece, especially this uh, this sort of impending threat of the thunderstorms, uh, which thankfully don't materialise. So I'd, I highly recommend uh, anyone who's inspired by this chat goes and uh, reads Adam's piece in Club Clubinologique, uh, com, and looks at that list as well for some, uh, uh, if you've got a bit of money hanging around, some wine investment tips uh, for the future possibly as well. Adam, it's great to chat to you. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Not at all. Thank you very much, David. Good to talk to you. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time for our first trio of medal winners from the IWSC 2021. And if Adam inspired you with all that talk of Tuscany, then here are some winners from that neck of the woods. First of all, Quirkia al Poggio. Chianti Classico, D-O-C-G, so not a super Tuscan in the modern sense, but super nonetheless, uh, because it was a gold medal winner. A blend, majority Sangiovese, with uh, 12% Ciliello and uh, small amounts of Canaiolo and Malvasia Nera. Uh, this is from the heart of Tuscany near Florence, an estate of 100 hectares of organic vineyards and olive groves. They pay homage to the monks who lived and farmed the land in the 11th century. They also have amazing apartments you can stay in too. Giving their golden gong, the judges said, energetic and sublimely integrated, boasting aromas of forest berries, plum crumble and tangy, tantalising red cherry and raspberry. In the mouth, he's a powerful and intense gent with a racy red cherry core, strong finish and teasing hint of white truffle. Delightful, delectable and a touch Mr Bond. That's what they said. Uh, the estate is listed by Armit Wines, if you want to seek out uh, those wines. Next, Toscana IGT that scooped a silver medal from Tenute Piccini, uh, Geografico Borgo alla Terra 2019. The Agricoltura Geografico was formed in 1961 by 17 farmers who wanted to improve the quality of their produce. Now with over 60 producers, it still holds to the belief of working with the land to keep the identity of the wines. The judges said, pretty peppered raspberries, smooth balanced tannins, a juicy palate of dark plum and sweet balsamic with a deliciously earthy, elegant finish. And you'll find some of Piccini's wines at Tanner's. 
And another silver medal winner from Tenute San Fabiano Conti Borghini Baldovinetti, Armaiola 2016, Toscana IGT. From an historic estate dating back to the 16th century this time, the judges said spicy black fruits on the nose, full-bodied with intense ripe berry, morello cherry and prune fruit, ripe tannins and a long, well-defined finish. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. The climate crisis is front of mind right now as world leaders gather in Glasgow for the COP26 conference where the message from scientists is more catastrophe than crisis. If you go back to the first episode of The Drinking Hour, one of our first topics was sustainability with Professor Greg Dunn from Plumpton. Uh, down in Sussex. We talked about how we as consumers can make a difference by seeking greener wines and spirits. As we heard from Greg, it's a complex, multifaceted subject, but one thing is very clear, bottle weight makes a big difference. Why? Because wine is shipped all over the world and a bottle doesn't need to weigh in at a kilo to do its job properly. Now there's a campaign to put bottle weight and recycling at the heart of the conversation about wine. Its co-signatories are Jancis Robinson, OBEMW, and writer and presenter Alicia Hansel, who joins us now. Alicia, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and well done for your action on this. Um, so it's fairly obvious why you chose this moment uh, as a call for action. Uh, but what exactly are you calling for? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it right there. You know, it's COP26. Uh, we're kind of in a climate emergency than a climate change. I mentioned that in my petition. So it just seemed like the absolute perfect time. So we are calling for... Um, three things so for producers to put bottle weight on tech sheets and i think that just allows you know anyone that wants to look online and research to be able to see immediately and obviously then for commentators you know me and you uh, to have those facts and figures there and then the second thing kind of moves into that is that we want writers and presenters and whoever else to mention the weight of a bottle when you know reviewing wine um, where possible. And the reason for that is, um, yes, I appreciate for the average consumer bottle weight might not mean much in and by itself, but I think using it regularly will mean that bottle weight becomes part of the standard conversation. And it means that, you know, consumers can make that choice. You know, they can look at a, a review, see that maybe it is heavy and think, actually, I'm not going to buy that. And then the third thing uh, is a call for us all to lobby for more recycling because the rates really are ridiculous. It's such an easy thing to do. Uh, it just, it makes sense that we're calling for it. Yep, mine's about to be collected outside and it's always slightly embarrassing how many bottles there are in there, but actually, <laughs> but at least I'm doing my bit for glass recycling. Absolutely. Um, sustainability conversations are always complex. You can easily disappear down a, a rabbit hole when you're discussing sustainability. So why have you chosen bottle weight and glass recycling specifically when there are issues around monocultures in vineyards, water wastage, energy use in wineries, all those other things? Absolutely. I mean, gosh, yeah, the list is never ending, really. And these are all incredibly important factors, too. Um, but the reason that uh, we chose bottle weight 
particularly is because we wanted something that was immediately actionable and easy to do. Um, you know, and kind of changing bottle away is and becoming more aware of it is easy to do. And also, it's actually the biggest um, component of the wine industry's uh, emissions. So glass, heavy glass, and the transportation of glass makes up over 60% of the whole industry's carbon emissions. So it is kind of the Achilles heel of it all, really. So that's that's the reason why we, we wanted to tackle bottle weight, specifically at this beginning point. Although I would like to say, you know, even though this petition calls for those three points, the plan is in the future to build on those. I mentioned uh, that sort of kilo wine bottle and um, with those really heavy ones, you can kind of tell it's ridiculously heavy. It has a huge <laughs> punt on the bottom that has bears no relation to the quality of the wine inside. Um, you, you lean over to pick up the bottle and you feel like you're doing exercise in the yeah. gym. It's so heavy. Yeah. Um, so it's fairly obvious those are uh, you know, unnecessarily heavy. Um, mm-hmm. What should a wine bottle ideally weigh, do you think? So um, Wine New Zealand are fantastic at this and they class anything around um, kind of 500 as being average. Uh, Now in the wines that we get in the UK are, you know, kind of that's the starting point at 500 going up to about 700, um, I would say is in the UK the average. Anything, there is absolutely no need for wines to be over 700 grams in weight, absolutely no need whatsoever. And some do weigh in at sort of something ridiculous like 1.2 kilos or something, which is just yeah, um, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a really well-known Romanian producer who you know quite frequently puts their wines in bottles that are under 400 um, grams. So it's absolutely doable. Um, and as you mentioned, there's no resemblance to the quality of the wine. But I think that's probably a percent issue um, that we also need to tackle Uh, you know consumers have it in their heads I think sometimes that a heavier bottle does mean better quality wine so that is something that you know me and you can play a part in as well Um, you know talking about that and just educating the the consumers absolutely now i've been conned myself in the past when i picked (laughs) up a a wine bottle and thought oh that's that's probably quite good it's got a quite quite a sort of weighty bottle and actually the wine inside has been um you know at best average so there's absolutely and then some of the finest wines you can buy hundred dollar bottles of of excellent wine in new zealand from some of the top producers uh can be uh, in 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 bottles that are yeah 500 grams as you say yeah. so it's uh, I, I think it's a, a great message to to get across. Um, it's fair to say that um, there's a, a, a you know there's some self interest here for the wine industry too, mm-hmm. isn't there? Because the wine regions uh, that we revere are set to change if we don't deal with uh, climate change, aren't they? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Every year we're seeing, you know, reports of, gosh, unprecedented or the toughest year, you know, fires in Napa and Sonoma and droughts in, you know, Murray-Darling, Australia. It's it's happening in front of us. We all know it. We report on it. So we know it's happening and it's only going to get worse. You know, I was only just reading earlier that um, one of the producers of Ciro in Sonoma has had to essentially cut all the fruit off. They're not making wine this year because they 
they made the call that actually they would need to save the vines um, and give them strength because they were in so they had such a drought that they're not making any any wine. So I mean, God, you know, these are producers essentially saying, right, for this year we're we're going to say no because they have to save the energy and the you know that that's there. And I think aside from regions that are kind of at the extremes, the regions that are currently, you know, doing okay, maybe in cooler climates, um, it will throw them into uncertainty. We only have to look at Bordeaux, for instance. You know, they've had to recently introduce Portuguese grape varieties because it's getting so warm. So it will change the horizon of wine as we know it. It's we should do play devil's advocate as well. Mm-hmm. There will be people listening who will say, hang on a minute. You know, there you are talking about this uh, sustainability message. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your own footprint? You go on press trips. I bet you go on aeroplanes. I certainly go on press trips. I go on mm-hmm. aeroplanes. The last one I went on was with you, actually. It so was. What yes. do you say to those people? I think there are the two options, really, that, you know, someone like you and I who do go on press trips, Um, can do we can either stay as we are you know put our head in the sand not say anything hope we get away with it and just live our merry lives or you can stick your head above the parapet admit to yes i do have some imperfect practices but try and do something you know I, i you know will be the first to say i'm fully aware that flying is not great um but you know i do try and mitigate though that as effectively as I can. So currently, you know, I, I don't say yes to every trip. Um, I make sure that if I do say yes, I go with a purpose. So it's either because I've got articles commissioned or for research, it's not just a jolly. And um, I do actually offset uh, my carbon emissions as well. So every month I pay for um, one and a half tonnes uh, to be offset. And that is whether I go on trips or not. So I do try you know i am aware um and i will try and go further uh you know the use of trains for for shorter trips is definitely on my agenda but i think it's also really important to say here that it's not about going down that what about route because actually you could go down that to the nth degree if you wanted to do you have a car do you eat meat do you have children and i don't think actually that is very it's not particularly helpful because we have to operate in, you know, this imperfect world. It's not about going from naught to 60 and us all becoming monks and kind of, you know, denying all material objects. Um, it's about making those incremental changes that last and build on that. A bit like, you know, when you're trying to lose weight, I don't know, for instance, you're never going to be able to stick to three shakes a day. You know, it's about walking you know walking up the stairs as opposed to taking the lift or what have you so it is about those changes and what i'm petitioning for is actionable it's right now it's tangible and actually will make the biggest difference you know it's there's over 32 billion bottles of wine made each year and as i mentioned earlier it's over 60 percent of the wine industry's carbon footprint is in glass and transport so that's the kind of thing that we have to focus on right now. Good point on uh, weight loss as well, uh, actually, because uh, if, if you take that kind of um, uh, 10% uh, 
it doesn't make a huge difference. But if you do 10% every day, as in 10% less, or you eat 10% less, uh, then you quite rapidly make a difference that you can actually notice on your waistline or whatever. You notice when you you look in the mirror. I've done it myself. I did it during (laughs) lockdown. And and, uh, it's a great um, parallel uh, to, to draw. Why do you think it is that glass recycling rates are going backwards, by the way? I was I, that just blew my mind when I saw I those figures. I know it's it is ridiculous. I mean, gosh, I don't really know what what is the kind of collective thinking about it. Maybe we've just got lazier, perhaps. But I, I think we need to look at you know what we can do. You know, part of the petition is looking at what we can do to help that. So you know, just as a as a point in the UK, where you know hovering around 65 percent, the the whole of Europe um, taken as a whole is about seventy six percent. Switzerland, Scandinavia, absolutely putting us to shame, you know, past 90%. And America, gosh, 25% recycling rates. So I think, you know, let's take a look at what those countries are doing well. So Scandinavia and and Switzerland, for instance. And and I remember when I was a lot younger, (laughs) I used to hang out in Denmark quite a bit because uh, I had some Danish friends and, and I was really amazed that they had a essentially a deposit return scheme so for every can or for every bottle uh you would take it back to the local machine or and you would get one crowner which is you know 10 pence for a small can or 25 pence equivalent for um, a big bottle and i think we need to look at do i i know the government uh, have promised that um we will have uh, the introduction of a scheme um, in 2024. It is a year later than they promised, but I think it's really important that you know part of this moving forward after this petition has kind of you know gained more traction and building on those steps is to make sure we lobby the government to keep to their promise because we know they don't always um, and just make sure that happens. So I think it's kind of looking at other areas, uh, countries that are better and emulating that. Yeah, good point. And I, I know in Germany, uh, you have to pay, I think it's called something like Perfand, which is a deposit scheme on a plastic yes. bottle. And and then you can put the plastic bottles back in these machines at the grocery yes. store and you get a voucher to spend against your grocery for 25 cents or something. Mm-hmm. But it does really make you think about the value of something that you otherwise regard as disposable, Absolutely. which I think is a, a fantastic thing for culture change. And it's just the kind of thing you're you're talking about there. They should just kind of get on with it. And hopefully they will once they've um, once they've totally. seen your, uh, your position. So um, just on, uh, uh, I want to talk about snobbery as well, because you and I on a recent press trip that we referred to sort of talked about wine snobbery and, and how annoying it is. Do you think there's a bit of snobbery around things like bulk wine and wine in cans? Um, because they are more sustainable um, and yet uh, people are still quite sniffy about them aren't they yeah absolutely i mean um i think bulk wine so let's take that first so bulk wine is great i think there are separate issues around that aside from snobbery so i know that some places don't actually allow you to um ship a wine out unless it's bottled i'm also aware that there are possible temperature control issues there which might not be exactly suitable for kind of the finer um wines as they were but um yeah i think uh bulk wine as a whole then moving on to the snobbery aspect absolutely why wouldn't we it just makes complete sense um and cans as well i think you know anything that there's you know wine is 
often kind of been stereotyped as being a little bit elitist or a little bit snobby. And I will be the first to admit that there is still some remnants of that there. Um, but we have to just knock those barriers down. And that is part of our job, you know, as journalists and as writers and as press, wine press, to try and just keep beating on the drum and say, actually, there are some fantastic wines that come in alternative packaging or in, in bulk wine. And, you know, as with anything in time, it will it will become fine. I mean, gosh, you know, in, only in the last 10 years, you can think of vegan products in uh, supermarkets and it would be a case of, oh, why are they, why are they introducing vegan products or lactose-free products or, or whatever it will be? And slowly, slowly, actually, now they've become extremely mainstream. And I think that will happen with wine as well. It just has to, you know, we've just got to keep keep on <laughs> um, and keep, you know, um, beating the drum of them. Another good parallel, actually, with the uh, the vegan uh, products, the plant-based food too. And yeah, you're right, bulk wine, the quality is uh, remarkable these days compared with even a, a decade ago. And yeah, cans, that's the for the future format. We need to get better wine into them. But what a great format it is. So easy to chill, so lightweight and infinitely recyclable. Although it does have a, you know, a, 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 a slightly dodgy start, the can. But if you carry yes. on recycling it, then wow, it goes on forever. It will outlive uh, you uh, and me uh, uh, as well. So what um, can we do to support this and to support your petition? So um, what we're calling for at the moment is for signatures. So anyone can go to change.org forward slash forward slash wine emissions. Um, and that's the, the starting point really for it all. And once we've got a good number of signatures, well, quite frankly, that's when the hard work starts. That's when I'll be taking to task, you know, the big brands and producers and lobbying um, and kind of all of those people that have signed, I will be calling on you for your support further along the line. This is this is a race that's uh, going to take a long time. Um, you know, this is years in the making that will we'll eventually make it. <laughs> but yes, so first and foremost, sign the petition, change.org forward slash wine emissions. Brilliant. Well, I've done it already and uh, everyone should do this. It's a great... Uh, initiative. Um, thanks ever so much for coming on The Drinking Hour to talk about it, Alicia. Thank you for having me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So there's just time before we go for a final trio of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame and if Alicia inspired you to think about sustainability, let's kick off with New Zealand. Uh, she mentioned it back there, a country which has an enviable record on sustainability in its wine industry. New Zealand wine growers set up the world's first national sustainability programme, which began in 1994 and now covers 98% of the country's vineyard area, which is pretty awesome, as they would say there. Uh, Yeelands Pinot Noir 2020 from Marlborough won a silver medal and 92 points. Uh, the judges said bunches of freshly picked berry aromas mingle with sage and pine needle hints. There's a lovely savoury backbone here and dark strawberry notes evolving on the palate. Very attractive. I've tried this wine and I'd second that. Check out Yeelands sustainability page on its website too. They make use of solar and 
wind power and they used their vine cuttings in specially built boilers to uh, control temperatures uh, in the uh, the winery and all of Yeland's branded wine products are subject to a full life cycle analysis as well. It's impressive stuff. And what about wine in a can? An Italian sparkler perhaps. The House of Canvino Brut Non Vintage won a bronze award. As the name suggests, uh, Canvino, it comes in a can, though that entails mining to make aluminium. Uh, once it's produced, it's potentially infinitely recyclable, making it a great choice for single-use servings, as we were saying. Of this bronze medal winner, the judges said, supple, simple and utterly refreshing, suggesting pear, grapefruit and acacia flower. I had this last night and I can uh, concur that it's uh, a really uh, enjoyable wine. An interesting point that might also explain the medal, uh, it's naturally sparkling through the Charmat method, the kind that's used to make Prosecco. So it's not carbonated uh, as many rival canned sparklers are. And I think that makes a real difference. And Scotch whisky is on course to be carbon zero. The Scotch Whisky Association's new sustainability strategy has set the target of reaching net zero by 2040. Here's a whisky from Nugneen Distillery on the west coast of Scotland, an independent organic distillery and a true pioneer of sustainable distilling practices using 100% renewable energy, officially verified as a net zero distillery. Giving a silver medal and 94 points to the Nugneen Organic Single Malt Scotch Whisky, the judges said, Citrus notes of grapefruit and sweet oak over dry biscuit and some grassiness. Golden honey and pears on a well-balanced palate. Nugneen has also just won the IWSC Spirits Artwork and Bottle Design Award for its beautiful looking bottle made from 100% recycled glass. Uh, so well done on that too. Highly recommend you uh, check that out. It's uh, beautiful looking and uh, clearly beautiful tasting too. That's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Adam and to Alicia. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, that's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.